Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, also welcome to those of you watching online. It's lovely to have this opportunity to come to our final exposition from Habakkuk. Thank you, Keith, for your chairing and your very kind words. I'm, I share the view of Keith. If you've, if you've made five of these sessions, uh, we really admire your stamina. Well done. And um, I also want to say thank you to uh, the committee, which has done such a good job, I think, in a very wise and courageous way uh, to push worldwide forward again this year. And uh, we're very grateful to Tom and, and the team in uh, looking after us all so well. Uh, I always like on my final session especially to thank the technical team for Johnny and the team at the back there. They have the power to sabotage my best efforts and uh, they've done a great job looking after us all. Thank you very much. One of the things we've been looking at this week and we will hear again tonight from Malcolm and Liz is the extraordinary way in which God's people have been expanding, the gospel has been advancing in the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Um, it's happened, hasn't it, during our lifetime. When I was born, something like 75, 80% of the world's Christians were here in the North, Europe, North America, and elsewhere. And now, uh, some years on, it has completely turned around. The center of gravity of the world church now is in what we call the majority world, where the majority of people are and the majority of Christians are in the global south. It's been a fantastic shift, which has resulted in wonderful growth in so many countries. What's particularly intriguing about it is that very often, not always, but very often, the church has been growing rapidly in contexts of poverty in situations of conflict, perhaps social and economic decline. In fact, I have a friend who lives in that part of the world who does wonder if there is some kind of correlation between the challenges which God's people have faced and therefore the growth of the Christian community. I say again, it's not a neat equation, but I think there is some correlation there. Um, if you have the opportunity to meet believers from some of those countries or indeed to travel there, you discover, as I have done, an extraordinary sense of dependence on God, a commitment to prayer, a very joyful worship. I mean, a very simple, very simple illustration. When I last did a Lang preaching event in Nigeria, uh, we all arrived, quite large numbers of us at the center. We got up in the morning, ready to begin, and uh, there was a power cut in the area where we were staying. Quite a few of the brothers who were, and sisters who were there hadn't slept because there weren't enough beds for all of us who had arrived. There was no breakfast being served, unfortunately, and no running water. The photocopying for the session I was about to lead hadn't been done. Now, in the conferences where I've been involved in trying to help, if we ran out of coffee, it would be a disaster. But what did they do? Well, they sang for half an hour. And it's that kind of spirit, isn't it? That response of uh, dependence on the Lord, of sustaining uh, Christian joy and worship in all kinds of circumstances, which is one of the remarkable features, that dependence on the Lord. And I think it captures something of what we find here in these closing verses of Isaiah's prophecy. 
What do we find as we come to these last four verses? Would you say it is a happy ending? Well, in some senses, yes. I mean, the note of rejoicing is hard to miss when you read these verses. But in reality, of course, we're going to see that the situation was just as bad as it was when we began in chapter 1. It would be the wrong use of language to call this a happy ending. The situation for Habakkuk was still terrifying. But something had happened to this man along the journey, and I hope that we've seen that. We began in chapter 1 asking the question, why, which echoes Habakkuk's bewilderment. Why, he, why was God allowing all of this to happen? Why were God's people drifting away? And then we saw him wait as he went up onto the walls, onto the ramparts, and he listened, waited for God's word of revelation. That led to a revelation of God's judgment, and we use the word woe for that section of chapter 2. And then yesterday, if you were with us, we saw this remarkable vision. We're still in that section now of chapter 3, a prayer, a song, a vision of God's majesty, the Lord who is coming, the Lord who acts in power, the Lord who is victorious. So it had been a remarkable journey for Habakkuk, and I hope also for us in some way. As we come to these closing four verses, we discover now that he ends in worship, as I've put on the screen there. And he bows the knee to this sovereign Lord whom he's been worshipping. And I think in some of the most moving words in the whole of the Bible, he shows us some of the key elements of living by faith. Uh, or if you like, elements of how to trust God in turbulent times. So there are just four uh, bullet points we'll put up to uh, understand these lessons in worship, living by faith, trusting God in turbulent times. Here's the first. Respect for the Lord. Verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Well, we saw uh, the section yesterday, the earlier verses in chapter 3, Habakkuk had encountered God's majesty, God's power. He'd heard of God's judgment, God's victory. And he was shaken to the core. You can see it in the graphic poetry of the way in which it's expressed there. He was near to collapse. He was trembling like a leaf. He was shaking from head to toe because he'd got the message for Habakkuk, for his people, there would be no escaping the reality of God's discipline, which was coming, his judgment on the nation. And it must also have been his response, I think, to the extraordinary revelation of God's majesty that we looked at in the powerful song and prayer of these last few verses. And there are similar examples, aren't there, of people who have encountered God in that kind of way. You'll know them well. Let me just put them up on the screen. Job, do you remember, in chapter 1, uh, after all the uh, uh, arguments with his friends, then later on he had a great vision of God's greatness, and he says, I will say no more. You know, he was speechless. Isaiah, who saw the Lord on the throne, high and lifted up, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. Peter, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And John, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
There was a remarkable book uh, published not long ago called The Trivialization of God. Donald McCulloch wrote it. Unaccustomed as we are to mystery, we expect nothing even similar to Abraham's falling on his face, Moses hiding in terror, Isaiah's crying out, woe is me, or Saul's being knocked flat. Reverence and awe have often been replaced by yawn of familiarity. The consuming fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere perhaps, but no heat, no blinding light, no power for purification. We prefer the illusion of a safer deity, and so we have pared God down to manageable proportions. Now, I, for one, am so thankful that uh, in contemporary evangelicalism, we are encouraged always to rejoice in God's grace and to enjoy God's presence with a degree of intimacy, to reflect all of that in joyful informality in our churches. But when you read passages like Habakkuk 3, which we did yesterday and are now there, or other passages such as the ones I've just listed on screen, you realize that there is another side there is another response which is called for amongst God's people. And I suppose as we look into our own lives and we look at some of the inconsistencies of our lives or our churches, some of the hypocrisy, I speak as one who knows that, then there are times perhaps when we should tremble as well. When before God's majestic holiness, we should take more than one step back. The God we worship is the Lord Almighty, the Lord who reigns. And that's what Habakkuk had discovered. That's why he sings in this song about his shaking before the Lord, his respect, his awe. Um, Peter Lewis has written a lovely book about the living God. This is what he says. He is our Father, but he is also our holy and heavenly Father, a Father like no other, the Lord, the King. We may not stroll up to him with our hands in our pockets, whistling, um, just a couple of books to recommend you if you want to search them on the internet. Michael Reeves has published two little books on the fear of the Lord, and they are so helpful. Uh, because what does it mean to fear the Lord, he asks? Well, it's not negative, it's not gloomy. He, he shows that it's actually part of a healthy and a joyful Christian life to have that sense of awe and right fear and respect for the Lord. Second, rest in the Lord, because verse 16 continues, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. I will wait. We remembered from chapter one all of the restlessness in Habakkuk's response in his praying, why Lord, how long Lord? But he had discovered what God had said about the end. He knew that God's word was sure and here we have a little echo of what we saw in his standing on the walls in chapter 2. Do you remember? Uh, though it linger, this word of revelation that God was going to act, though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And I've said several times uh, during the week that this is right at the heart of the idea of Habakkuk's experience, and that is learning to wait. Habakkuk was in between times, between God's promises and their fulfillments. Like us, he was in the waiting room. That's a difficult place to be. But now, without anxiety, without uncertainty, 
He can rest in this certain knowledge that God would bring about his purposes. God's word was reliable. God would have the last word. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. It is, in fact, the truth of chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by faith. I think we've also seen as we've gone through these verses that that is not necessarily an easy experience for us. Waiting, especially through times of struggle, can be quite painful. And it was certainly for Habakkuk to then find his way to resting in the Lord. Um, on Sunday evening when uh, we introduced this little series, I quoted Desmond Tutu, something he said during the struggles in South Africa. Sometimes you wish, of course, to say to God, God, we know that you are in charge, but why don't you make it slightly more obvious? There are times, aren't there, where we're bewildered by what's happening just as Habakkuk was. So how is he able to wait patiently to rest in the Lord? And as we've seen, it was because of his faith in what God had revealed, in the word God had spoken. Now, there would be discipline for God's people. That was coming. There would be 70 years of exile, but eventually there would be judgment on the nation invading us. There it is in 16. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on these Babylonians, on the nation invading us. Sure enough, it happened. Now, Habakkuk, of course, had to see through the fog to determine uh, what was going on as he wondered about God's purposes in the world. But he heard God's word. As we believers now, this side of the cross and resurrection, we know much more about God's ultimate purposes. But still, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight, as Paul expresses it in 2 Corinthians 5. We too may have to submit to the Lord's discipline, just as God's people did in Habakkuk's day in the 7th century BC. We too will have to wait for that final day of deliverance, which we were talking about yesterday. We live by faith. Habakkuk 2 verse 4. And that means we must rest in the Lord. Now, I think this applies both at the macro level and at the personal level. So, in terms of the big issues of living now as we are, in a tumultuous period globally, living in a turbulent time, we have to rest in the Lord for what the outcome might be year by year, decade by decade, until the Lord comes. We don't know. We must wait patiently, resting in the Lord. But I think it also applies pastorally to our own lives, to many of the struggles which we as believers go through or where we might be able to help others who are walking this pathway. Um, Many of you will know the work of Johnny Erickson Tada, uh, a remarkable Christian. She's written a great deal about her experience of living with paralysis. You may remember she broke her neck as a younger woman. And in a section in one of her books, she writes about that experience, but also the death of a friend. I haven't put it on screen, so I hope you can follow this quotation. Through Kelly's death and my own paralysis, I was learning that there was nothing but unhappy frustration in trying to second-guess God's purposes. Why, God? Why did Kelly die? Why was someone else alive and healthy? There was no reason apart from the overall purposes of God. 
We aren't always responsible for the circumstances in which we find ourselves, but we are responsible for the way we respond to them. We can give up in depression and suicidal despair, or we can look up to a sovereign God who has everything under control, who can use the experience for our ultimate good by transforming us into the image of Christ. So that's learning to rest in the Lord, isn't it? He will bring about his good purposes in our nation and in our world, and he'll bring about his good purposes in our lives, whatever it is we might currently be going through. Here's the third. Rejoice in the Lord. You know it was coming, because here it is. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. I think what's so moving about this lovely little doxology, this beautiful song, is the context in which it is sung. Um, I remember for, for many years I'd never heard Habakkuk preached apart from this lovely doxology for very good reasons. But you do not really understand the force and the power of this beautiful song unless you've made the journey from chapter 1 onwards and you see the kinds of things that Habakkuk has lived through and how remarkable it is that he now comes to this point yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He says in verses 17 onwards, those beautiful words we've read already, though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Well, what is Habakkuk describing in verse 17 onwards? I think the most obvious in the context, he is describing this devastating impact of the Babylonian army, which would raise Jerusalem to the ground. And the verse is, is very clear when you read it. Everything has been taken away. It begins with what, for us as Westerners, we might think are luxuries, figs, grapes, olives, but it moves very quickly on to show that there is nothing at all, no food whatsoever. Uh, this was a devastated economic and social infrastructure. Everything had gone. Um, on a couple of occasions during my travels, I've been taken to visit some of the thousands of people living in shacks in slums, one in Nairobi, one in India. And if you've ever had that experience or even seen it on the television, you know how overwhelming it can be to see the ill-dressed children and the huts in which people have to live and the smell and the dust. Well, what Habakkuk describes is even more extreme than that. We know from chapter 1 in the poetry of this advance of the Babylonian army, the international terror that they brought, what would have happened to people in Habakkuk's day? Nothing was left. And that's why this little word that appears here, yet, is so remarkable. Stripped of everything, this man of faith says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It's there in verse 16, yet I will wait patiently. And verse 18, yet I will rejoice. Again, there are echoes of this kind of attitude sung in the midst of despair by others. It's Job saying, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. It's Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 4, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, 
And then, of course, there's another very famous doxology in the wisdom literature. I've quoted him already. Do you remember Job's words? At the end of chapter one, he'd received news of this sort of catalog of disasters, such as Habakkuk is describing here. Uh, all of the livestock had been taken away, and then his servants were killed. Then he heard the devastating news that his sons and daughters had been killed through the collapse of the house. And Satan's wager with God, do you remember about Job, was stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, he will surely curse you to his face. And Job's response to that devastating news, naked I come from my mother's womb, naked I will depart, and then he says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So instead of cursing God, as Satan said he would, he blessed the Lord. And again, I think it's important we don't trivialize it in some of our songs even, because you need to see what this man lived through. We need to see what Habakkuk has journeyed through to be able to say, yet I will rejoice. One commentator on Job says anybody can say the Lord gave or the Lord has taken away, but it takes real faith in the midst of sorrow and suffering to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And why is this? How can Habakkuk respond as he is in these verses? And I think the key is there in verse 18. It's very clear. And what can he be joyful about? There's nothing to be joyful about except rejoice in the Lord. Like Job, he'd been stripped of everything else but God. And I think that is the key to his joy, to Job's being able to bless the Lord, to Paul and his commitment to sustain his ministry despite being close to death at times. It is finding that God is enough. The faithful creator, the covenant Lord, our Father, he is enough. And whatever our context, and wherever you are listening to what I'm now saying, this can be a reality for us as well. All we've seen in these passages is that scripture points us to the fact that the men and women of faith, for men and women of faith, Evil has lost the initiative. Despite what is happening around us and in our world today, evil has lost the initiative. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord Omnipotent, is the one who is in control. Um, I think that's important because there is, among some Christians, a tendency to think that uh, when we become Christians, we would not be facing some of these challenges it's, it's a fact, of course, that when we become believers, we don't automatically beam up into the mothership, do we? We're not safe from these hardships. We share them in our world. There is no guarantee either that we will be immune from the Lord's discipline as churches or individuals. There is no guarantee, we were praying about it in our prayer meeting earlier on, that we will be immune from the oppression of enemies, even in the West, or the dangers of living in a broken world. But we know from these verses and others that the Lord will not let go of his people. As we saw in chapter one, Habakkuk affirmed that, my God 
He spoke of the covenant Lord. We belong to you. You are not going to let go of your people. And you have not abandoned your world. Your good purposes will be fulfilled. And because we have the Lord, we have all we need. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Rejoicing in God alone. I remember um, not long ago meeting a remarkable man from Kosovo in, in former Yugoslavia. And um, in his past, he had ran several businesses. He had uh, several properties. He was quite rich. He was actually a bodybuilder, and he became the Yugoslav weightlifting champion. So when I spoke to him, I agreed with everything he said. And um, then came the invasion of Kosovo some years ago, and he was forced to evacuate his shops and leave his home. Uh, he was beaten up. His family were taken off as refugees, so he went searching for them. He eventually found them in Albania. And whilst he was there, he met a group of Christians in Albania who helped the family, gave them food, gave him a simple job. And then eventually he was able to return back to Kosovo, and he looked for his shops, but they'd been destroyed. He looked for his houses, they'd been burnt down. He looked with his family for a way to try to make a living. And while he was back there in Kosovo, he saw a van drive through the streets with a sort of fish logo on the back. And he realized this was the same group of Christians he'd met in Albania. They were now setting up a similar ministry in Kosovo. And eventually, you know, of course, that he, would, he came to faith in Christ. And he's serving actually in churches in Kosovo and beyond in some neighboring countries as well. He's a fine pastor. And as he told me this little story through a translator, this is what he said. I had nothing, but now I've found everything. The Lord is my life. It's a lovely testimony, and it could be echoed, I think, amongst us in this building. We all know people who would say that. It's not until we have nothing that we realize that the Lord is all we need, as some of our African friends will say. I will rejoice in the Lord. That's the song of the true believer, isn't it? Well, we've seen respect for the Lord, rest in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, rely on the Lord. The lovely verse 19 with which this book closes. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Um, if you were here on Monday, if you were listening in online, you may remember that we said one thing that Habakkuk did in the midst of the turmoil of chapter 1 and his dialogue with God about why everything was falling apart, he also affirmed some of his certainties. And I mentioned then that this seems to be what often the psalmists and the prophets did. Indeed, Paul does the same. And that is, in the midst of turmoil, when a lot of things are shaking, it's good to affirm the things we know to be true, to affirm the certainties. So in chapter 1, verse 12, he came out with, My God, my Holy One, we will not die. And here, at the end of the prophecy, he does exactly the same. I think probably with, with added vigor. Remember, he's still in the same situation. It may even have got worse, but he says, I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. Again, you see, he knows, I will not be separated from this covenant Lord. I belong to him. He is my strength. He is the rock on which I'm standing. 
I wonder if you would agree with me that uh, these moments of pressure which we go through as God's people, maybe not as extreme as Habakkuk, but we all face it, those are opportunities for us to come to know the Lord in deeper ways. If we had time for testimony, I'm sure many of us would say that. We come to know ourselves better. Most of all, we come to know the Lord better. And that's certainly been my testimony. Um, I had polio when I was five years old, as some of you have asked about. Uh, it affected both of my legs, both of my arms. My children think it affected my head as well, but that's children for you. Um, it's a small disability, but I know as I look back that through certain circumstances of my life and our life, Margaret and, and I together, um, we have learned to depend on the Lord in ways we never would have done if it had not been for some of the circumstances through which we've traveled. Now, we're going to hear the same from Malcolm and Liz, I'm sure, say that, and it's true for almost all of us, isn't it? We learn to trust God in ways we never otherwise would. It produces what Jim Packer called adult godliness. This is what he says. Why does uh, God allow these trials? How, do we, uh, how does God encourage us? And this is what Packer says. Not by shielding us from assault by the world, the flesh and the devil, not by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances, nor yet by shielding us from troubles created by our own temperament and psychology, but rather by exposing us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy, to drive us to cling to him more closely. This is the ultimate reason from our standpoint, why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort or another. It is to ensure that we learn to hold him fast. God the Lord is my strength, Habakkuk said. Actually, the word he uses there could also mean army. He is the one who is able to sustain the life of the righteous who live by faith. He provides for the person who has nothing else. He equips and strengthens the person who's been pushed right to the limits. God the Lord is my strength. He is all I need. Or Paul, in, in the lovely letter of 2 Corinthians, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It was the same for Jeremiah. Do you remember we've mentioned Jeremiah a couple of times? He was prophesying at the same time as Habakkuk. And if you read his call, if you have time today just to read Jeremiah chapter 1, um, he was a man like Habakkuk who was really up against it. I mean, he had to proclaim the word of the Lord for 40 years as God's opposition spokesman. He saw hardly any results. He was speaking against the priests and against the military and against the politicians and yet in his call in chapter 1, we find the same kind of strong assurances that are here at the end of Habakkuk 3. God promises you will be a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall. They're all images of God strengthening him. God was inserting vertebra into Jeremiah's elastic spine. He was saying, you will stand by my strength. And this is also the testimony in 2 Corinthians. This is what we experience, isn't it, in our own lives, that God will give us a strength that will enable us to confront our weakness and fears and still stand up for the Lord as he calls us. 
Habakkuk's testimony is exactly the same. Verse 19 that we were just looking at implies the same sense of stability. He says, he enables me to tread the heights. Um, there is a, an image here that's just worth looking at for a moment or two before we finish. In other words, I can live with unstumbling security, like an animal climbing the hill. He enables me to tread on the heights. Here's uh, the message translation. Counting on God's rule to prevail, I take heart and gain strength. I run like a deer. I feel like I'm king of the mountain. Now, Habakkuk would face many high places, many mountains ahead. But through his encounter with the living Lord in the way in which we've been following it, through his hearing the word of God and the promises being made, he could rise above those challenges. I mean, do you know this beautiful psalm, Psalm 121? I'm sure you do. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I suppose many of us think about this verse, as I did for quite some while, and that is when you look out at the beautiful hills, you know, the mountains of Morn, or the fells in the Lake District, or the Scottish peaks, and it's, it's kind of inspirational. You know, God made them, he's going to look after me. I get renewed vision and inspiration and strength. But at um, one of the preaching events with, with Langham, where I was, and another colleague of mine, Chris Wright, a man got up to preach from this psalm, and he saw it quite differently. Do you know how he interpreted this verse? He said, when I look up to the hills, up to the mountains, I think, however am I going to do it? Where will my strength come from as I look at that mountain? It's impossible. But then he reads verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I think that's a good perspective on the psalm, and indeed that is Habakkuk's testimony. Whatever mountains he now faced, whatever mountains there may be in our lives, it is only through the strength of the Lord. Some commentators remind us here that when Habakkuk talks about these high places, the heights, it's often a word which refers to areas which are under the control of hostile forces. Um, for example, they might be a place of pagan worship up there on the heights. It's true today. I once had a very exciting car journey across some of the mountains in North India. And as you go over the passes, there you find the temple. There you find the shrine. There you find all of the flags. Because it's symbolic. The gods who control the high ground actually were in charge of the whole territory. So perhaps there's a reminder in these closing verses of Habakkuk that in God's strength, we are also equipped for this kind of spiritual exercise as well. We're not to be intimidated by the occupying forces, the evil forces, the spiritual forces which Paul talks about. We're not to be intimidated because by God's word, by God's spirit, because of the power of the gospel, we are able to see the gospel advance. That's what we're praying for all around the world this week. Whatever the situation, we are able then to ascend the heights. Well, there we are, brothers and sisters. Respect for the Lord, rest in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rely on the Lord. These are wonderful lessons for how to live and how to trust the Lord 
in turbulent times. This has been Habakkuk's journey. It's been a journey from confusion to confidence, from fear to faith, from why to worship. And so it can be for us. We have the same Lord. We have even more of the Lord's promises. We have his Holy Spirit. Nothing will hinder God's good purposes. God will have the final word. The Lord reigns. Let's say these words together on the screen. Beautiful words from Romans 8. And we'll read them aloud together. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.